0: Stolen Signs Podcast. I am Kendall Gilmett here with Harry Pavlidis. Hello, Harry. Hello. Today t- we have
1: twenty-seven. 20.
0: That's like wait, no, twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. What 20, tw- twenty-seven.
1: Twenty-seven.
0: Twenty-seven.
1: outs Out. Twenty-seven is an important baseball number.
0: Mike Trout. You just, can't,
1: you just can't. That's just twenty-seven outs are regulation. That's, the, that's twenty-seven outs is the currency Altuve. of baseball. Okay. There's a lot of
0: 27s, and I think it is because of the 27 out. Do you think? I never thought about that. I think is so. It, so there are more
1: 27s, than there are 26s and 28s. Is that what you're saying?
0: Um, well, we probably would have to look that up, but I We're believe. Gonna... Well, it, you know what happens to? It seems to happen that very good players wear 27. Oh, that's it's interesting. So, well, we'll have, we have to look. Theory. We'll have to look have like theory, career man. war by uniform or, number, yeah. by uniform number, or something. Yeah. We can probably hook that up somehow. Yeah, we'll figure that out. Anyway, episode 27. Today, 27. we are talking with Jason Benetti, who is the play-by-play voice of the television broadcast for the Chicago White Sox. And I, well, he took he's taking over for Hawk Harrelson. And... Full time next year, or I think Hawk's doing some games this year. Is yeah, that? Hawk's yeah. doing like
1: twenty games this year. Yeah, so um, yeah, there's been like a transition. Year. Yeah, where he just did uh, home games for two years, I think. Yep. Jason, that is. Yep. And uh, now I think he's got like one hundred and four. He said uh, he he uh, yeah. is close to the full. He is the primary yeah. voice of the White Sox now.
0: Yes, and he's excellent. And yes. um, for I first ran into him at Saber Seminar last summer. And Boston, which I uh,
1: recommended him for after seeing him do the uh, pitch talks.
0: Oh, nice. And he was, he
1: was like incredible. Anybody who was there that night knows what I'm talking about. Uh, He had, it was, I was like, this guy is the perfect, like, host. So I was really psyched when uh, Saber Seminar was on a White Sox weekend. So I told Dan Brooks, like, you've got to try and get this. Cause there was like, he has a short list of like, people are good enough to do that. Like host, you know, and I was like this guy. And then I, I guess it worked out well.
0: So yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really it was awesome. fun last year. So, uh, so yeah. So we asked Jason to come on and uh, have a good chat here in a few minutes. Um, we are on Twitter at stolen underscore signs. You can email us. Stolen underscore signs at baseball prospectus. Uh, you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you probably already know that, but if you rate and review us, that would be awesome. Um, I am going to be at the baseball prospectus Seattle event, which is coming up now on the 21st. So it's a week from this Saturday. Are, are tickets still available? I think you may have. I believe uh, we on... might've missed that. Spo. if you're coming, yeah. awesome. Say hello. If you're not coming, um, you're going to miss out. So you can,
1: however, get tickets to those the tons woman, of, yeah, but we have, I'll be, I'll be at the white Sox. Talk about the Chicago white Sox. Yeah. We're having an event there. Oh, you know, I, I should have mentioned that to Jason. Um, but I, I believe it's August 11th. Mm-hmm. You can find it on the website. We have Rick, Ricon the general mm-hmm. manager, uh, and a bunch of uh, local BP people, including myself, Jonathan Judge, and whatnot, will be there. So buy a ticket. Just go to baseballperspectus.com. You can find the ballpark events in the top navigation. Pick the city of your liking and hope to see you.
0: Yes. And I heard um, from a few folks there was recently one in Arizona, and I heard that the, a good time was had by all down there. So BP ballpark events are super fun. It's where I met Harry. And uh, a good time. They're fun. So, uh, we will be back after a short little interlude with our conversation with White Sox television broadcaster Jason Benetti. Stick around. episode 27. Uh, today, Jason Benetti is joining us, who is the voice of the Chicago White Sox. Jason, thanks for coming on with us.
2: Glad to be here.
0: So, Jason, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into baseball and broadcasting? Start as early yeah, as you so like. I, uh,
2: yeah, uh, well, I was three days old and the first TV. No, I, um, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a high school radio station where they let us do play-by-play of football, basketball, and baseball. And at the same time, I was a kid going to White Sox games and watching the 93 White Sox, the, uh, the Jack McDowell, Wilson Alvarez, Alex Fernandez, Jason Beret group. Um, so I got to do play-by-play very early in my life. I went to Syracuse University for broadcast journalism, etc., uh, they let us do basketball, football, lacrosse there. There wasn't a baseball team, but I caught on late in my college career doing a little fill-in work with a A team in Syracuse uh, where I, I got basically my first opportunity to do any real I would I would go sit in the crowd during the summers of independently Cook County Cheetahs games with a tape recorder in, in Chicago and just like new games. Uh, and there's nothing like county cheetahs game on a wednesday especially because they don't exist anymore they've been renamed uh and then you know i went through a ball for two years with the uh the the salem then avalanche now red sox before that i actually got hired uh as the play-by-play announcer for the team that was the cook county cheetahs the windy city thunderbolts which is an effort to get as many weather pattern words into one team name as you can and then uh, I, I went back to Syracuse from '09 to 14 and did the A team there. So, you know, I grew up watching it, loving it. I played uh, front page sports baseball on my computer. Which oh, was hell like the, yes. I that, mean, for me, one really? of the first like franchise building uh, sure. computer games.
0: Yes. I played that too. It was awesome. So, so when I was yeah, at Syracuse, it was
2: really
1: great. When I was a student at Syracuse, the Chiefs were uh, the Blue Jays farm team yeah. and it was the the uh like ed sprague Derek bell pre-operation shutdown and we used to get free tickets from uh the taco bell down on erie boulevard basically just as long as you went to the drive through did they still do that i mean you're a little younger than me so i assume you know, did, when you were a student did they still hand out like literally as many like we would say if you start out shy you're like i'll take two the next time you get four then finally you just go down there and say i'll take two dozen
2: you know, See, this is... there, there were a lot of there were a lot of places where that seemed to happen just to try to build support. but I've, like I've always said, if you work in minor league baseball or know anybody who works in minor league baseball and you ever pay for windshield wiper fluid, uh, you're doing it wrong because there's always free VAT at minor league baseball games. So my, my favorite promotion in Salem in like 2007 and 2008, they used to give away loaves of bread just that's... for people walking out of the stadium. Like you'd get <laughs> bread, and and it was like a it was like a, a a toast oasis in the parking lot once people left because they'd like go into the bread and like start eating it in the parking lot. Maybe because it was Thirsty Thursday, maybe not. I don't know, but it was it was the most bread I've ever seen in one place. That's uh,
1: that's that's a. Uh... It's probably smart that they give it to you on the way out, because if give it to you on the way in, people, yeah. especially on Thursday, Thursday, you could have all sorts of flying yeah. loaves and slices. Was the bread sliced, yeah, or yeah. was it?
2: No, it was it? loaves. There were loaves of bread given out to people as they left yeah. the ballpark. Yeah, I think if I you know. had a
1: pre slice it'd be safer to bring it, let them bring it in, because if you tried to throw the entire loaf and it a slice, it would fall apart, into, you know, so it wouldn't work. So I think safety. Was yeah, then probably people
2: the like one. bring knives for butter or try to, uh, and then yeah. like then there's the development of peanut butter and or jelly, and then somebody really gets intrepid and brings a toaster, like the guy in West Virginia who who does the the whole toast thing when people strike out. You know, it it's gets ugly.
0: Better on the way out.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so when you were outside of the toast extravaganzas, what, what was what was what else was memorable about your minor league uh, experiences?
2: Notable on the field, off the field, both what which ones?
1: You you can pick.
2: Okay. Uh well in Syracuse I was part of the Steven Strasburg extravaganza uh in two thousand and ten. He pitched for six games for us that year, and it was basically a carnival every time he pitched. People drove up from Pennsylvania to see him. People were flying in from even further. It was bonkers when he threw. And then the next year, we got Bryce Harper, and the first couple of weeks of that were crazy as well, because that was an everyday function, but these end up being two of the most talented players, if not in the division, in baseball and Strasbourg hasn't been exactly what we expected, but uh, that was grand fun. And then on on the like minor leaguey sort of side, my first road trip I ever went uh, in the Carolina League, and I won't name the hotel because it's probably out of business. But if it is, I don't want them coming after me. But our first road trip uh, that I went on with Salem, uh, a bunch of the team got bed bugs, yeah. uh, and so i was renting a bed from the team like that was the whole situation like they gave me housing and rental furniture uh as as part of my deal for the for the season and i had to give away the bed they had to like go clean it or throw it away and i had to get a new one because those things don't go away too easily i don't know if you've had them i don't know if you even want to talk about it if you have but uh the hotel was a little scuzzy and a bunch of us were waking up with eggs on our pillows, which is oh, not oh,
1: the is my minor leagues are... That's
2: uh, terrible.
1: ...unnecessarily brutal. <laughs> just...
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that was that was like... There were some really good hotels, and that was not on the list of those.
0: <laughs> so I would imagine no. that's not the to... <laughs> case now.
2: No, 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 not, not now. I used to, and I can't believe I got away with this for as long as I did because the teams have deals with hotels but i used to on the Syracuse Chiefs blog when i was in AAA every road trip the first time we went somewhere i did a game called rate the IL hotel referring to the international league where i would just assign arbitrary point values to the hotels we were staying in and i can't believe they didn't make me stop doing that <laughs>
1: They probably did. Someone was not paying attention. <laughs> Who should have been?
0: That had
2: to have been it, right? That had to have been it.
0: So you went from minor league ball and started with the White Sox in 2016. Is that right?
2: That's right, yeah. Yeah, I was doing half the games the last two years. Then I'm doing 140 this year.
0: And so you are kind of taking over, you mentioned kind of transitioning into um, t- taking over every game from a legend, broadcaster, Hawk Harrelson. So how has that transition been?
2: It's been great. He's been nothing but kind to me. Steve Stone has been a, a magnificent partner, uh, you know, extremely welcoming The both of them. And the thing that helped a lot, and I've said this before, but it really truly is, important to me, to me that in January, before I did a game with the Sox, Hawk called me and basically said, look, uh, don't try to be me or anybody else, or even some of the people that you really like. Be yourself, you do you, I'll do me, and it'll be great. And he was right. And for him to say that, and be that warm, and want that to be the case, was really enriching, and I'm grateful for it.
0: Do you get much interaction with him? Um, Because obviously you're not calling the same games, but do you get to interact with him much?
2: You know what? We we text sometimes, uh, but I don't get to see him because when I'm not there, he's there, and when he's there, I'm not there. So generally, no. But we did do one game, the three of us, together for a couple innings earlier this year, the home opener. And uh, we had some fun. I needled him a little bit because he always says the dreaded leadoff walk. I said, uh, so, Hawk." How do you feel about that lead-off walk? And he kinda of chuckled and laughed. <laughs> but when you grow up when you grow up watching somebody, you know all the catchphrases. And there were times, especially early on, where something would happen in the game and just instinctively, because I grew up watching him, like those phrases run through your mind. And there's almost like a the first couple weeks there was like an editorial process of, oh that no, that's a Hawk phrase. Stretch. <laughs> that, that's what Hawk does.
0: <laughs>
1: Uh, but that's that's in a way uh, a kind tribute to him as well
2: no it is like and I would say it but then it was like oh no he says that yeah I said mercy I said mercy in a football game earlier this year and a couple Sox fans were watching it and they were like did Benetti just say mercy in a football game and I was (laughs) like I sure did
0: (laughs) that's awesome Yeah. So you mentioned Steve Stone. Like I grew up on Steve Stone. I grew up a Cubs fan. And so I was always uh, back when he called games for the Cubs um, was always just amazed by his ability to break down pitching and just the game. Like what kinds of things have you learned from him sitting next to him on a day to day basis about baseball, pitching, life, anything like that. Like That seems like a trove well, of information.
2: Yeah, I, he is so good, especially at sequencing. Uh, yeah. Why is he throwing this here? What's he going to throw now based on the swing from the last guy? That sort of thing. I, I learn something new every day. and And the funny thing for me is, and this is not to disparage Tony Romo, because I think he did a great job at football last year. I really enjoyed it. But Tony Romo got very loud accolades for predicting plays before they happened in football. Steve Stone has done that for decades in baseball, and people are not writing that story. And I think, you know, any comparison of Tony Romo should really start there.
1: See, my, my, like, prototypical Steve Stone story is, you know, some story in the 90s where he's sitting with Harry Mm -hmm. Carey, and he says – if he goes back to the fastball here, it's going to be trouble. But if he goes ahead and, and unleashes the slider in the dirt, he's going to get him. And it's like, oh, well, there's one finger coming, fastball in trouble. It's like he would not only tell you what the possibilities were with terms of what pitch might be coming. He wasn't necessarily predicting, like, which pitch, but also which would be successful and why. And it was stunning to me. And it's like, so a lot of, like, watching how pitchers pitch, swing reading, all these, like, extraordinarily – uh, nebulous concepts in baseball, he's the master of it. I mean, it's yeah. He, he
2: just distills it. I mean, and and it's funny because I know where he's going now. Like I understand his his pattern of how he sets these up, and it's not that it, it's not that it's necessarily uh, canned behavior. I just know based on what he says two pitches in advance in a sequence where the end run is, and it is really fun to watch develop because he starts talking about. The left fielder, maybe in a 1-1 count with a runner at second base, and then eventually that's going to end in, but the right fielder has the better arm, and he goes there because it's a left-handed pole hitter, and he's preparing us for the eventuality of the opposite field hit or the pull-side hit, but he ends on the pull-side hit because that's more likely for the hitter, and then suddenly the right fielder comes up with the ball and unleashes a cannon, and it's like, oh my gosh, he set us up for that three pitches ago, but he didn't start on the nose with the right fielder. He could have just said, right fielder throws hard. He didn't. (laughs) He put it in a package where you're like, wow, that was a strategic decision he made in order to... Canvas all of the possibilities and land at the most likely one. That is playing chess when other people are playing, not even checkers like Connect Four. Yeah,
1: I mean, he he's definitely has the ability to do. Which is I think the hardest, the hardest thing, which is combine the extraordinary knowledge. I mean, he's basically just from. All his years of being in the dugout, being on the mound, being in a bullpen, being in a broadcast booth, that his understanding what's happening is enormous and what's going to happen. But he's able to weave that into a broadcast and into a show is extremely difficult. And I mean, it's kind of the same problem that we kind of wonder how you handle it with with we're in the oh, my God, we have so much data era. Like, you guys are, you know, not only is, is Kamka sending you stuff, but you've got probably packages of StatCast data and whoever else you have providing data and all this information coming. You know, for Steve, it's a natural thing. But how do you guys as broadcasters deal with all, all the glut of data? That's yeah, coming I out?
2: mean, I'm, I'm on Baseball Savant and Fangraphs every day. When I have a hunch about something, I want to investigate the data. Because And I want to talk to the players, too. Like, I'll, I'll pull up a heat map of the last three weeks and show it to somebody and say, hey, what gives? And there's a chance that they're going to give me something that makes sense based on that. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I don't really, not anything. Like, I had a, I had a really good conversation with uh, Giolito about his changeup, and it started with me looking at the data on how much he throws it And then it became why he throws it and when he throws it and that sort of thing. Like the other day we were talking on the air about Jose Abreu expanding his strike zone recently during the slump he's been in. And I went to baseball Savant and his chase rate actually was not substantially higher for the pocket of time we were talking about as compared to the whole season. And I I think data is there to either confirm or make us rethink what we're positing. And I always like that. It's there because sometimes the numbers know us better than we know ourselves. I mean, that is 100% true tendency wise. So I love it. I mean, it's an opportunity for something new to be learned every day. I think it's great stuff, but you've got to give it context. Like there's gotta be a reason that you're giving that stat. Like, I'm not just going to say 26-degree launch angle on that home run. That's, that's not the purpose of it. It's a comparative number.
1: Yeah, I think that's the, the, the comparative nature of it. That's important. You know, What does that mean for that player? What does it mean for that situation that he's able to lift the ball? I think that's always basically been the critique. I mean, even though what I do is work with baseball numbers all the time, I don't want them up front in the broadcast. So I know sometimes they have these stats special broadcast you know an online feed or something for a big game i don't watch that uh it like, i just want to like see the stories of the baseball and get insights like what steve brings which is something very specific and detailed about about the game
2: um, can i ask you if you would change your opinion on that if there was a statcast driven home run derby telecast
1: driven hmm uh that's
2: that Feeding one's fine the numbers- the numbers we would, the numbers we would give you would be Statcast only, hypothetically.
1: No, because I work with that data, and I know that you would be spewing out inaccurate information, especially on long high hits or ones down the lines, and I would not want that. No, thank you.
2: What, but what if it was? What if it was much more Statcast driven? Comparing with regular season numbers.
1: Yes, if you started showing me this is what this guy profiles in, in normal work and this yeah. is what he's doing in, in that, yeah, I'd be totally down with that. I, I'd like to experience. see their fatigue. I'd like to see their fatigue, perhaps, you know, through through yeah. the event. Um,
2: yeah, now, now uh, we're talking so, about
1: like adding to my engagement of the show.
2: So you just committed then to Monday night having your TV on ESPN News because that's what we're doing.
1: Okay, fine. <laughs> Yay! I set
2: you up like
1: Sony. All right, in exchange, you, in exchange you need to start using the highest quality pitch data available, which would be on Brooks Baseball, because you know you're, you're about twenty percent of the pitch IDs on Savant are wrong. So you gotta be careful, especially guys like Giolito with his slider and changeup. I, I I suspect, given the way his changeup used to move, maybe it's easier now. I I bet I, I don't look at that, but I bet that they're wrong on it. Stuff like that. Um, so I, I would encourage you to uh, use the data the teams Dan use. Dan Brooks is my guy.
2: Dan yeah, well, Bruce
1: Brooks, I'm, is... I'm Brooks is a data provider. So in uh,
2: oh, <laughs> so I just got set up too.
1: Yes, you did. It goes both ways, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, I'm the powered by Pitch Info part on Brooks, but yeah, Dan and I set that stuff up um, because I I've. We basically curated all the data, and and all you know, teams, most of the teams in Major League like Baseball subscribe to that data, and they use that because of there's like a slightly better you know thing about it. So I always cringe when I see the numbers on TV that are either a wrong or b obviously a producer took them off Dan's website and didn't credit us. They've seen things down to you know like a digit of sensitivity, like hey that that that's not a coincidence. Um, so but you should check us out. There's things you can't do there that you can do on Savant, but I would encourage that as an additional
2: tool for your use. Oh, I've I've used and cited Brooks Baseball quite a bit. There you go. Yeah, I love I love you guys. I didn't I didn't know you and Dan were in cahoots as
1: much as. Oh, we we're deeply in cahoots. Yeah, I'm I'm the fool who actually recommended you to do the emceeing. Uh, Super seminar, so you can blame me for that. Nice. <laughs> you should go back to that someday because uh, I know everybody really enjoyed. I want. I,
2: I told Dan. I told Dan, so good. hey, let's not have it on a day where the Sox play other than in Boston because I want to go back. I had great fun.
1: It's such yeah, a great thing. I, I don't get to get out there as much as I would like to for it, but a huge supporter of it and you know, sending a bunch of people to work for me to go in my stead. And it's, it's one of those places where um, players – you were talking about how you have to talk to the players a bit before. And I mean, this is a thing where we started with Brian Bannister, who is a coach for the Red Sox now. Uh, and it's been this wave of guys like John Baker, David Ardsman was there. Um, I'm, I'm guessing Nate Fryman going to show up there, but the, the former players going into that role of, uh, you know, statistical liaison, like Dan Heron has, has that job now in Arizona. Uh, Sam fold, I think is in Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Fernando.
0: Perse Alex.
2: Last Tintron, year. Right. Fernando Alex. Right. Yeah,
1: there's all these guys, and like, so when you, so when you're talking with the players, like, are some of them like noticeably more receptive to this? Like, where because it seems like you know one, maybe one out of every two clubhouses, uh, you know, at any given time, Major League Baseball, I feel like has a that's just my like, it's like one, in, it's like one in fifty. It's like not a lot of guys in Major League Baseball are like into this stuff. Am I wrong? Like I think when, the number. No, I think the number is growing.
2: Uh, I I wouldn't say it's our entire clubhouse, but I've not talked to our entire clubhouse about it. So my dad is going to be about twenty percent skewed. Uh, but uh, you know, I think it's imp- I think there are people on every team now, from what I gather, who are into it, and I, that number is only going to grow because, like, I was talking to Dane Dunning when he was in Winston Salem before he got injured. And he was talking to me about spin rate and like looking at the data right after he goes out and throws and that sort of thing. So I think as college programs build that and it's augmented even at the amateur level in high school, uh, we're going to get that. Like that's going to be happening and and you almost have to speak the language if you're going to communicate successfully with the players that are coming through.
1: Yeah. I've even um, started to find out that they're, Setting up systems and uh, you know summer leagues like woodbat college leagues in summer, now, not just Cape Cod league as wow. long but yeah Cape Cod League has long been a source of data. Division one baseball has right. grown massively in this footprint, but the Cape has been there for a while as well, but now it's like i don't you know it's the smaller you know like teams can buy their own unit like a Rapsodo or flight scope they don 't have to have a trackman or a sport vision like expensive broadcast or you know, even a smaller trackman unit. So these kids are having this stuff now. And it seems to me that in the D one, the kids who pitch in D one and pitch in these major summer leagues, they know about their own data already, where they're going to, it's like, it, it, it's like, so I wonder if like in three to five years, it's going to almost be the exception for at least players. who were developed in left. the U S you know, I don't know how well this is, you know, although I think at the Dominican, they're starting to record more and more information as well. But, it's got to happen. Like I think, in three years, it's going to be weird. Instead of it being one hundred and fifty, it's probably going to be, you know, five guys in each clubhouse on each pitching staff. Like most of the guys in the staff are going to be fluent and curious about about data.
2: It's just, I think that's one hundred percent true, and I think it actually may be a little quicker than that, based on all the stories that are out there about teams gaining advantages by players gaining minor advantages through discussion of this sort of stuff. So I, I think it's really important.
1: Do you think it's a like major, like there's, you know, we talked, we talked about this on this show before, because i kind of a cycling fan, but the kind of marginal gains concept, which a lot of the athletes who come through those marginal gains programs, right? Like, it's just BS, it's just a psychological edge. I mean, what is it, what, you know, the players, are they using this stuff to say I should change how I is like James Shields changing his arm slot? Is it Giolito tweaking his change up? Also he changes arm slot too, I guess too. But there's you know or is it or is it more esoteric about uh, this hitter, if you attack him this way, look at the data, look at this heat map, or look at the spray chart, you know. What's yeah, the level I, I of engagement?
2: Tend think, I tend to think it is more personal improvement than it is situational improvement. That's what I think. Um that I I th- I think it's hey I'm going to tinker with my curveball and see what what I if what I think is happening is actually happening that sort of thing I th- I think it's much more about individual gains than it is hey how should I attack that player I'm not saying that doesn't happen but from my conversations with people it has been. I'm working on this pitch. I want to see exactly what the spin rate is. Like, I want to mess around with this pitch. Maybe not mess around. That's a little too guess and check. But have some confirmation of something they were trying. Or just really totally tinker and see what happens.
1: I mean, I think this t- takes the mess around concept. Like, yeah, I've been messing around with the stuff, you know, on the side, in a couple of bullpens. It takes that to a data level where you can say, you know, wow, these teams are running stuff in the bullpen. You know, or you can go out and the mound before the game like this why you want to have your uh, starter stop by the stadium <laughs> um, when they're on a you know before they rehab because you can record some data from them um, but I think this takes that like hey I'm gonna try this out and then throw it in a game to the point of is this game ready And I have some empirical validation of it, even if it's something is as, as straightforward as the spin rate is in the range I want based on the fact that I know now know what the range is because I saw that guy beat our batters from afar. And then I went into the clubhouse and looked at his data and it said, this is cool. I've learned how to do it. I mean, the whole whole ecosystem of tweaking and developing pitches is just, I
2: mean, I think, I think it's both validation, but also making sure that consistency is there. I think you can make sure your pitch is robust enough statistically to then unleash it, or you have the option to do that. So, if over and over again, you're getting the same readouts, I tend to think that in the long run, people are going to look at that and say, okay, now it's time to take it from the lab to the game. Now there's not always time for that in game. You might just have to say, okay, I feel good about dropping down. Like that's what Shields did last year at Fenway park. Is he basically said, I'm not getting anybody out. I'm going to, I'm going to tool around with this. And he did it with a splitter earlier this year. And at Wrigley mm-hmm. too, he was just, messing around with it in the bullpen, and he decided to throw it. Now, I think over the course of time, you gain knowledge that allows you to say, okay, it's, it's, I can play with that. But for a younger pitcher, if you can go to the pitching coach and say, look, I know you don't want me to throw this, but look at the numbers I'm getting here, and they're consistent over and over again. I'm doing it. I think it provides you evidence that something you think is something that will be.
1: You know, and I with all the data I've looked at, over the years, all the way from these, you know, low-level players, all the way up to the majors, you see definitely see that where you can almost predict that a pitcher is going to improve by some regrouping or tightening of his data of some, some factors that are relevant. It's not always the same things, but I think that's absolutely true. Like it's like, I remember when Jeff Samarja was finally turning the corner was you could see it in, in, in his data in spring training, it was like, Oh, wow. Suddenly, his the way his cutter is consistently separated from his four seamer. Uh, he's got it. He's got the feel for those two pitches, to, and therefore he'll be able to make them do what he wants to do with it. As you know, it's in a tighter approximation of his target. It's kind of like it's basically having command and control of the stuff. It's if it's not consistent, you're not going you're not going to have command. So I think that's where you can use this data to see. Even, you know, not just for a single pitch, but the pitcher as a set of different attributes of like, is that fastball separate from his sinker? And I've had this conversation with teams where they're they question the data. They say, We don't think you're splitting up this guy's two seam and four seam fastballs correctly. And the end, it's like he needs to throw his two seam fastball better, right? Right. (laughs) So you can use this stuff to raise questions, not just answer them sometimes, you know. Well, what i say,
2: I've been. I've actually—it's funny you say that because I've been thinking a lot about about why people are um, averse to hearing so much data in a telecast. And I, as I've been saying some of the things I've been saying over the past month, based on data, I have realized that I could say those as assertions without data. And. Having gone to journalism school and wanting to provide evidence for basically any conclusion, or having done a geometry proof and wanting to provide a basis for every conclusion, if I look up that Carlos Rodon, last time he faced, I don't know, Mike Moustakis, he threw him 12 sliders, three fastballs, and zero changeups. I could say Carlos Rodon, last time he saw Moustakis, threw him a dozen curveballs three fastballs and no changeups. Or I could say Carlos Rodan probably isn't gonna throw him many changeups today. Yeah. Now right. I don't know which one is better. However, I do like and think it's good for our game that, that data those data are out there for us to be able to marshal. Now I think it's it's kind of a worldview question whether or not you actually want to hear the numbers behind my assertion really. I think it's, do you believe in the scientific method and do you want to know how I got there or do you want to just be told something? And I actually don't think it's the worst thing in the world if somebody just wants to be told something. However, if you're going to do it routinely, you have to have control and understanding of the data. So I don't know that we're necessarily attacking does this belong in telecasts the right way because it belongs in the announcer's brain yes that's for sure that makes us better fans and better stewards of the game and when you can provide it to people if it encourages them to go do some research on their own you get better baseball fans as well so i've been thinking a lot about that and i still haven't exactly landed on an answer and i think it's some of both but i do think it's, it's, it's less of a should we or shouldn't we question, and it's even less of a how should we, but it's when should we utilize the numbers in order to prove our point.
1: Yeah, and, and it doesn't take the uh, romance or intuition or anything out of the game. Like, it, it really doesn't, because all the numbers and newfangled things are just manifestations of almost every case about something we've already known about and thought about in baseball. And yeah. if they if they help you have more knowledge about more players without having to literally watch every single game and every single pitch, but you can still have, like, detailed-level knowledge because of trustworthy systems and data that, you know, you can get now, why wouldn't you use that? Why wouldn't you have that knowledge? But I would, you know, say that the... Like it doesn't have to be an analytics forward thing. Doesn't it? it? Just it's just part of the knowledge. You you speak to the scouts. You sit next to Steve Stone and absorb all his information. So that's going to come out as well. You know, just the way watching a hawk, all your childhood made that come out of your mouth as well. You're going to you know learn from Steve and start thinking what you know how he thinks. Um, and exactly. all these all these different things are just there. And then you and then you and you, then you then you call the game. And uh, yeah, occasionally and, and the there's something you might want to feature. Something occasionally there's that like featureable thing, and you'll know it yeah. when it's like, hey, it's time to put you know, this up on the screen and really explain this interesting set of numbers. And well,
2: you know, and I told I told I told Mike and Darren this. I, I like the new baseball savant player pages with heat zones, which I know are sometimes unreliable. But like, think about the success USA Today had in America. It's mm-hmm. in every hotel, and jokingly, people talk about it being all graphs, right? It's just pie charts and graphs and all that stuff. That's very, that's very digestible yes. by an audience. Graphically, like at that, individual player pages being graphically based could be a major boon for baseball on television if we use it the right way. And frankly, I, I do think we should have at some point a large gathering of baseball television crews and radio crews, and just like talk about best practices. I don't think there's any reason not to do that because people will leave with their own opinions anyway yeah,
1: I <laughs> I, that'd you know, that's be really cool i that yeah. would be amazing because there's there's so much you know tribal knowledge you know. 30 different booths, you know, it's like getting everybody yeah. out to share it, you know, and it's really, come on, it's more than that. It's it's as many as three when you consider you have the radio and, and the Spanish language broadcast in a lot of markets. You know, you, you have scores of people who have different perspectives, experience, past players, non-players. You could definitely talk to each other, get each other less scared of it because <laughs> there's definitely people who are hostile. Uh,
2: yeah. But, and, I mean, frankly, sh- and frankly, have people who are more knowledgeable about it than us. I mean, I, I, I click around all the time, and I've had people who I think are very smart show me some of the ins and outs, but I don't claim to know everything about what's going on on Baseball Savants and Brooks Baseball and how to best use fan graphs and even the play index at Baseball Reference. Right. Like, there are tutorials online for some of that stuff, but also to just have a convention for two days in the offseason I think would be enormous.
1: Sport, sport vision who used to be the uh, one of the providers like right now it's siren hebgo and and uh, trackman i hope i'm pronouncing the first guy's company's name right probably not but uh but it used to be sport vision and they would have these sport vision summits where literally it'd be during the season we'd go to you know giants game and you would have two days of presentations from researchers from team people from the scientists who work on these things from educators who use this data to to you know teach physics
2: To me, what you even like, but this would be exactly
1: perfect. Like, make a broadcast-centric thing where all you—it's like where the data providers, the and experts in the field, focus on how the presentation of this to the mainstream audiences. Like, that seems like such an obviously—it's a good idea, Jason.
2: Well, well, but I think thank you. But I, you know, I think it's even it's like one day would have to be okay. What is practical to search for? Like, just just give us two hours uh, and say, okay, click – like, here's how you click around. Here's what all is available. Just really baseline level because the, all that is is barriers to entry. If you show people 30 ways to use Baseball Savant, that's 30 more than some people knew. And so if you give them the tools, the baseline knowledge of how to use it – I, I think then it, it allows them to build it into their day-to-day routine because I think the one thing that people forget is is that you know we're we're kind of short on time on a daily basis in order to build this stuff. Like you you need to have you need to be able to like set a timer and work for an hour and have some product for that night's game. And if you're just learning in season. You're probably not going to be able to use it most effectively, but you know, let's uh, let's try to work on this.
1: That makes a lot of sense because you're right. During the season, you're very focused on preparation and and not. It's hard to have time for self education when you've got a job. Right, and, and life gets day. in
2: the way too. You know, like yeah. the self improvement hour and a half in your day. If you have a friend in town and you want to grab lunch with them, well, that might be gone. Yeah. Right and then you get an extra inning game and then you have a day game and then you get on a plane and it's like the first thing that goes away is the reason to be kinetic mentally.
0: Definitely. I think that that's a, that'd be a really cool idea to bring folks together like that. Um, yeah, the wheels are turning. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, we want to uh, let you go, and um, you can get on with your day. And uh, we appreciate got a game your time. to get
2: to. Sox Royals, man. Oh, those 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 Royals. They're only yeah, about forty a, games under. Yeah, they're forty. We're thirty. A probably battle. being the White Sox. Yeah. Well, but uh, you know, we'll have fun anyway. But I, I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad to come on. You guys, uh, you guys made me think about a couple things that I think might be a good ideas.
0: And you, you did the same for me as well. So yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jason.
2: Yeah, it's great glad to, to talk to you.
0: Thanks again to Jason Benetti for coming on the show. That was very cool to talk to him, and um, yeah, get to get to pick the brain of someone who is very, very good at his craft.
1: Yeah, it's interest, very interesting to get his thoughts on how the players, you know, uh, use this stuff, use and you know, how they're exposed to it, and how, where he thinks it's going. But his his notion of the broadcasters should get together and that that I think is uh, that might be something that has legs. Yeah, that would
0: be a cool idea.
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, maybe you put it in with the winter meet or something. There's 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 got to be an opportunity for for that. There's got to be a way to make that work. So.
0: Right. Yeah, that would be very cool. So so we're almost to the all star break. Are we going to all star break is before us. Um, yeah, so the teams process. are wrapping up the first their first half this weekend, and then off for the All Star break. So uh,
1: the futures game is Sunday night. That's always a big deal. Yep. As as you just heard, I am committed now to watching the ESPN news apparently oh. uh, feed of the uh, uh, home run derby.
0: Okay. Hopefully, you gave some good feedback to him about how to present the data. The that data. <laughs> that, uh, It'll be interesting. He could present it. How I just want him to use Brooks. There you more. go. That's all. That's all.
1: No, he does. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the all-star game has been an interesting thing. It may, it, and it's come at a time where, you know, that the, um, yeah, Yachty or Molina was named to the, the team to replace, uh, Buster Posey. And,
0: uh, Future Hall of Famer, Yadier Molina? Is that yeah, this is mean? the thing.
1: It's like, yeah, so Jay Jaffe wrote a good article at Fangraphs about this. And um, he talked to Judge, Jonathan Judge, Rob and a bunch about data. You know, they helped them out with some of the questions because we do have a lot of catching data over at BP. Uh, and really kind of like really using the new modern data that is really, we can go back to 1988 with, uh, recontextualizing some of these catchers' careers. And it's always been kind of there for me as the researcher when we presented the information like that brian mccann and brad ausmus were and 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 in recent years russell martin are and you know hugely valuable receivers like brings them to mvp caliber levels and things like that mostly because of pitch framing and when you you know when you start to look at that it makes yadi's case a little different for the hall of fame so it, it makes them look more um more likely from a statistical basis to be valid and we don't even incorporate the game calling stuff into that and i think you know we're right at the cusp now where all these like years of catching research and data is now starting to we're getting to the rubber meeting the road portion right so this is kind of like where pitcher wins stop being important in cy young voting yeah it's like you know, uh, Brandon Webb, 16 wins and Felix's 13 wins. Like those would not have ha- You know, th- those were sequential events. You know, those people eventually backed off. The, well, if you didn't win 20. Yeah. Um, and now we're at this point now where we're starting that with catching where we're starting to almost like it's been really slow. And meaning it's we're happening.
0: starting to integrate. People, more framing into framing
1: value statistics. Like we do it it's a little bit into baseball reference like they put it on the side i think i don't think they end up integrating i think the poll said not to so maybe we're the only ones still with it but it's getting to that point now where you know we debunked some of Mike piazza was not a valuable receiver which, well he was and if we can get game call, calling value into this soup we're eventually going to be you know changing how we how we look at how catchers are put in the hall of fame. Like right now it's pretty clear that we're really there. We, there's uh not a lot of guys get in who are probably good enough to get in. But if we did a better job of catching all their, all these numbers, it would really put these guys in more obvious, you know, places
0: specifically yeah. defensively. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Because, because it's like, I mean, well, there's one thing, I mean, I have a couple of questions or points or thoughts, I, I guess. Um, So obviously let's talk two minutes about catching next thing. You know, we have a 20 minute segment. Yeah. Right. Why not? (laughs) I've got a question. (laughs) Um, So two points. One is, so catcher is the most important position player on the field. Is that, I think
1: I would think so. I mean, do you look at the, how do you know that already is because they're the worst offensively.
0: Right. So there's an inverse relationship there. Nichols law. Well, yeah. yeah. More or less. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I,
1: I think Nichols law not only applies within the catching, you know, within between catchers themselves, uh-huh. but I think it's about the position. I think you see that as a whole, like that, yeah. that there's the positional value of the catcher has got to be really high because we accept such bad defense. From right. It. But I, I think even then, I think we still don't fully estimate their value. Now, Brandon right. McCarthy, very smart, analytically forward-thinking, big league pitcher, uh, was on Twitter about this, and he's yeah. he said that you can't like do right. certain things, like with game calling and pitch sequencing. But I, I don't agree. Well, and I think... I, like I, don't, so, so I think we can do that. I think we can capture like the, the residue of being there stuff that right. we've already tried to get at. But also, I do think we can start evaluating <clears throat> certain skills and tendencies around catchers and... Whether or not those go into warp or not, I, I mean, remains to be seen. But it's like this notion that we should be able to at least understand more about what, how different catchers do things. Okay. And so, there's so much data.
0: So here's my second question. Yeah. So you said how how far back does the data go? Well, uh, you...
1: starting in like '88, basically. '88. Okay. Yeah.
0: So if we go back to '88, are there Catchers who should be in the Hall of Fame that are not, based on framing data.
1: Um. Yeah, I. Th- I would think so. Um, totally
0: off the cuff, so I apologize for that. But
1: uh, the top of my head, like Brad Asmus has like some ridiculous amounts. But he was such a bad offensive player. I don't know, yeah. but he had like a ridiculous amount of framing and blocking and runs and stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, pretty much every way we add him up was huge.
0: But there, there, so there may numbers. be a handful of candidates.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like, so. Sure. It would be even like. Well, on yeah, the other hand, we, we may find, like, this, I, yes. I, again, off the top of my head, I don't know, like, Ted yeah. Simmons, was he a bad framer? So maybe it takes Ted from being like, hey, he has enough to be in the Hall of Fame. Look right. at the other catchers, too. Well, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'm making that up. He might have been a great framer. Yeah. But, like, Mike Scotia was probably better than we appreciate. And we don't. We have very little data on him. But even late in his career, he was still good at framing. Yeah. Um,
0: Which is. Um, not normal, is that right? Like typically, there's you would expect him to frame. be at the yeah. You would yeah.
1: if he's good in at age 40 or whatever. Right, he was, he was awesome probably excellent at, at yeah. 30, most likely. Yeah, most likely. So yeah, I think we have to reconsider. So you would definitely look back, and and for sure, I I, I can't imagine that you wouldn't. Um, but I don't think it's going to be as ex- quite as extensive as a list as as maybe the modern guys where... I think what's really interesting is that people are like, look, if you put together the modern statistics you start to see Yachty or Molina's value. And maybe his like maybe he's a Hall of Famer, you know, at when you look at that. And
0: I think with that's Yachty, fine, like-
1: as long as you also then at the same time say, Therefore Brian McCann is also a Hall of Fame caliber player. Uh Russell Martin is a Hall of Fame caliber player. You like if you're going to make that case about yachting, you've got to make it about a few other
0: guys. Oh man, like I feel like that is going to be such a stretch for like the general public. And like, it's
1: because we've built it the this extra value of catching has been built only on narrative and myth. So as we demystify it, even with fits and starts or getting it wrong, and, and it's it may conflict with what people believed. But the notion that catchers have additional value that isn't captured by anything is that's been around for a long time. And it's like Yadier Molina is like the poster child at this time for that. And a lot of that, it's like 80% of that is probably totally 100% deserved. You know what I mean? So 80% is 100%. But the other 20% is reputational, narrative-based. We should measure it.
0: Well, I think one thing with Yadi, and this is not necessarily defensively related, because he's defensively he's been exceptional his whole career, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but offensively, he was a very late bloomer, and right. And, and I think he had a, like three quality of, offensive
1: years. Yeah, yeah, he was not a, a big offensive.
0: Of, of good quality offense and then But he
1: really uh, did learn to be a good hitter. Yeah. The thing is he was like a really crappy hitter for many for really he really was. Yeah. But he became a he became an actual offensive threat for a few years.
0: Well it's I, like his brothers, right? Like they were all good catchers. They couldn't really hit and so he was kind of in that mold, but then he learned how to hit and so it's like now, yeah, now I think I think once I think time.
1: yeah, I think we people had kind of a it's like when people mock projections because it doesn't agree with their own internal projection for a yeah. player, <laughs> you know what I mean, without saying that. It's like, these projections are bullshit, I use my gut. It's like, well, your gut is the GUT projection system. Um, gone utterly terrible, I don't know. Uh, so you have the same thing with, like, like is a Hall of Famer. It's like, because you have, like, this notion that he provides a tremendous amount of value to his pitching staff and therefore run run prevention. So you have to value that somehow, and people get a sense of it, you know, like, that's great, that's fine. And I think you hear probably, and you know, sometimes from players about what catchers they don't like and things like that or what catchers they do like. And yeah. the numbers tend to kind of agree, like the little limited research we have in all to accomplish on this, yeah. that it te- the reputation tends to actually... Be- kind of flow with it, you know. So it's it's um are these guys getting good results and therefore getting a right, rec- which it's like a chicken and egg problem, which is why I think you have to look at things like pacing and, and sequencing. Otherwise it's a causal you know
0: right. You just start hearing your own This guy, yeah, exactly. yeah. Well we
1: hear yeah exactly. With framing we could actually have, you know, things like the ball was here. Yeah. <laughs> uh with these other things it's gonna be a lot harder to do. But it's gonna become very important, I think, because it it otherwise we're going to be in this modern era of understanding. We're going to be attempting to evaluate the candidacies of Yadi and, and Martin and McCann um, without a full set of tools at our disposal. And it will just devolve into, uh, you know. What it is today. Well, yeah. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Monday yelling.
0: Well, I think, like, even just thinking about, like, um, I don't know, defensive Wizards, if you will, playing in St. Louis, making the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, Ozzie Smith was never a, a, an offensive, you know, he superstar. No, like, never. Not he was a, good a defensive superstar.
1: He's a better hitter than Mark Belanger, I think. I had to look that up, but I'm pretty sure he was. But yeah. Belanger, yeah, was probably the predecessor to Smith in terms of defensive
0: insanity. Right. So, I don't know. I, I, I've thought about this a little bit since, you know, all of this broke, but I, uh, I could see a Yadier Molina in the Hall of Fame for sure. Yeah, I... I, I would not I, be upset about it at all.
1: No, I don't think it's... To me, it's more like less about Yadier and more about... We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. In terms of understanding and, and evaluation.
0: Yeah. I think but it'd be yes, also interesting so It comes to down talk. to it, It's
1: like, yeah, it won't, it won't like... The guy's not retiring. We're not going to really have to deal with this for a
0: few years. Yeah, so. we've got some time to develop we got that time. metric. We'll right? figure it out by then. Yeah. Well, I think it would also be interesting to talk to, um, you know, Brandon McCarthy, and you know, and and have him on and and see what what uh, what his thoughts are on it and game calling and how does that affect and uh, and and how we might measure that it might be interesting.
1: Yeah, and uh, if you're interested in kind of how teams are starting to develop heuristics about sequencing, you can look at an article in the Athletic that just came out about the Red Sox, uh, and the, one of the people we mentioned on the show today is Brian Bannister, and how you know he's his, his the group he works in has started to provide uh, sequencing tips to to people. So it's happening. There's going to be people saying you can't do it, you can't measure it, can't evaluate it, can't optimize it
0: said I, I about framing too right I mean well no no
1: <laughs> no we just the numbers just came out and you're we like look and people are like no that can't be right and I was like no it, it turns oh, out to yeah, be right um, but with this it's like hey we're gonna do this and they're like no you can't and I mean I said literally challenge accepted right. um, because you know in a way when when a ball player says now you're not going to measure that successfully and it's like yeah okay I bet we I, I I bet we can, and I bet I bet I can change his mind too. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not in a year, but I think there are absolutely things. I mean, I, f- I have found evidence of catchers who cheat on pitch calling for you know handling base guys on base because they don't like do the guys who throw worse call more fastballs. And they kind of do. So, I mean, there's things out there that we can actually look at and see, like, is there something that is influencing pitch calling besides what we would think is the optimal track? And we can actually point a finger at it. That those are that's one thing. And you can get you can get into much more advanced things with, I think, the the, the pitch visualizations of like you know, yeah. that that what people loosely refer to as tunneling. But that whole that whole variety of research around the, the human perception of pitches um, and how they relate cross at bats, cross games, et cetera. I think that will also inform our ability to evaluate pitch sequencing and also looking at pitch sequences will help us try to evaluate, understand perception goes both ways, but there's plenty of work to be done. It's definitely going to be a lot of hard, hard signal to squeeze out of the noise, but Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, man, this is the crux of baseball right there. So yeah, for sure. Let's go, let's go to the core. Let's (laughs) go into the core. It's hot, but we can do it.
0: That does it for this week. Um, Thanks again to Jason Benetti for coming on. Thank you for listening. Goodbye baseball!
2: Jamona motor-